This episode is brought to you by our friends at DailyDrip.com. DailyDrip makes keeping up to date on programming skills easier. You already know how much time it takes to find good resources and learn new languages. What if the hard part of that was already done for you? Sign up for DailyDrip and pick a topic that you want to learn about. Want to learn Elm or how about Elixir? Maybe you want to brush up on your CSS and HTML. Every weekday you'll get a short video or reading delivered to you via email. The best part is it only takes five minutes a day. With a special coupon code just for Bike Shed listeners, if you sign up using the coupon code BIKESHED as one word, you'll save $9 on your first month, which means you can try out the Elm topic for free. Don't forget to use the coupon code BIKESHED, one word, to show support for our podcast. Make learning part of your daily routine with dailydrip.com. Oh, it's Sean today? <laughs> Hi. Yeah. It's me, your favorite co-host. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's up? Um I finally shipped that uh change to dirty and callbacks and active record. I forget whether that change was. <laughs> Basically, we clear dirty before after save callbacks are run instead of after. Oh, right. Yep. Which, like, effectively makes the mo- the majority of double save bugs that occur in active record impossible. And a bunch of features that couldn't work together previously, I was able to, like, just make them work together because we don't have to worry about those double save bugs. So it's really it's really cool, and it will make everything a lot more consistent and uh, work a lot better but it also involves a deprecation cycle which is really really trivial to work around like if you get a warning it's literally just you're, you're calling this method this method's going to do something different call this method instead but it's going to affect a lot of people so i'll probably just get a ton of hate mail for it <laughs> you love your hate mail what is when will you get this deprecation we've talked about this before i think or we yeah talked we about did the, an episode on we this. talked about the idea but re- refresh my memory is when when you will get this deprecation if you use a, basically any method from the active record dirty module inside of an after save or after create callback. Okay. Yeah. You think that'll affect a lot of people? Uh yeah. I didn't I didn't think so when I was writing it, but then after just asking some people to look through their apps, it turns out to affect like a lot of people. Hmm. Well, um and what will they do instead? Uh they'll just call a different method. Okay was dirty basically yeah okay in four in five oh there's only one method that is the like previous dirty which it was called previous changes and i basically exposed mirrors of every method from dirty for the previous changes uh version and then added an alias for the current version but already has dirty cleared before after save callbacks which has names that are a little bit more clear so instead of uh attribute changed it's attribute changed from database things like that has changes to save okay cool so making it clear like we're diffing between in memory and the database versus diffing between the last call to save and the state before the last call to save well but you're really diffing between in memory and in memory right you're like you're not going to the database to diff right we're diffing between in memory and what we know that what we what you uh, fetched as, from the database yeah what right. we as far as we know know to be the database barring any race conditions without explicitly checking again right right cool yeah that sounds good 
Yeah. That's double save stuff. Uh, it would be nice to get rid of. So that seems yeah. like it seems like a win. I don't think anybody should be upset. If you're upset, people, people right. will be. Just <laughs> I, I, I like whenever I break anything, people get angry. It's always just one of those like, this is a really, really good change, and it's going to make everybody's life a lot easier. But it's going to make everybody's life a lot easier in one of those ways where if I did my job, you won't know that I did my job. Right. But yeah. some people will see my def- the deprecation warning, so everybody just gets mad at me. So it's like a very bittersweet day. Well, I think it'll be okay. And that's coming in 5-1? Yeah, 5-1. Okay, cool. I had something I wanted to ask you about, actually. So this week I'm working on... A uh, the the thing I'm working on for a client, they have this table of orders with like millions and millions of records in them, and I need to write a job that unfortunately processes every single one of those orders in order to calculate some statistics about uh, the set of orders. Okay. As we've as we've discussed before, and uh, also as we've discussed before, I can kind of do this in SQL, but it's exceedingly it, the query is exceedingly complex as we've discussed before and right. also in the amount of time it takes new orders or very many new orders are likely to come in and being able to say like have i processed those yet is hard when i've processed when i've done them in just a sql query unless i want to drop down to like a pl sql procedure or something like that with a cursor right. with a cursor um, which is something i considered but for the sake of like reusing the same application logic without having to be like, is this the, actually the same application logic that I've written in SQL here? Or, you know what I mean? It's being right. like, let's reuse the same thing. We can process it all in Re- in Ruby. And so we'll use a job to process every order. So basically, the, my first naive implementation of that was find each, where I was like, okay, I'll just find each batch of a 1,000, and I'll go through them and process them. Right. And the person reviewing my code at the client made the very excellent observation that find each in this case does a lot of things that we don't need it to do specifically like ordering it does ordering right yes is it going to Uh, order? it's always going to do ordering yeah so so it can't do its job properly without ordering right but what i am actually interested in is not finding each what i'm actually interested in when you get down to it is doing a thing on a set of records until that set of records is now empty Right. So what I want is what I would call find while. So just keep finding me a batch of a thousand records until this query returns nothing. So okay. what we ended up writing was a, what he ended up writing and I looked at it and was like, yeah, this seems to make sense, is a loop statement, which I don't think I've ever written in Ruby before, where you just say like, loop, here's my query. If there's anything in this query, then for each one of these things, process it. Otherwise, break, right? Seems fine. And so I, th- I was like, that actually, like, I was thinking about the cases where I've used find each before. And I frequently use it for these backfill type things where it's like, oh, we need to update all these records in a way that I want to call Ruby for, not in a way I can do with SQL. And I'm going to set some record so that this is item potent. I- I- item potent? <laughs> so this is item potent, right? And I'm going to set some flags so I can keep running the job again and not reprocess these records. And so I was wondering if you thought find while would make for a good patch. Um, this is kind of how I feel about it too. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sold on the name find while. Right. Like I agree that it's kind of a common construct, but it also just isn't hard to write that code. It's not like it would be significantly cleaner or or shorter if it were a built-in method in Active Record, but. 
I don't know. I'd ha- I'd have to see the like a, a more concrete API. I agree with that, but then the the counter is like when you look at the API for Active Record, you see this find each thing, and you're like, that's what I want. I want to process each one of these things. And for the most part, that doesn't matter when you're dealing with an extremely large table. Something like what I do here is going to be better. But anyway, I don't. Yeah. I, I I was also like when I thought about it, I was like, I don't know, maybe a gem or maybe nothing, maybe a blog post. <laughs> I mean, I'd be interested if if you think if you think there's a API there that could work out. I'd be interested to see more concretely the what the API would look like. Yeah, we can talk about the API, and then Brendan, who is the person who did the code review, actually did some like, and here's what the performance is. Not anything scientific, but basically, was like, oh, that's a lot better. We're gonna use that. So yeah, that was the probably the most interesting client project thing that I've had happen uh, in the last week or so, but. We didn't get a chance to talk about the DNS apocalypse. Oh, yeah, that one, because Shopify went like completely down from that. So quick summation for people who weren't on the internet, like by the time this episode comes out three three weeks ago, <laughs> we haven't recorded it a lot. It did not affect the internet in Russia, for the record. Is it because nobody in Russia uses Dyn? Like, I don't I don't understand. No, I'm I, so... Oh, because Dyn servers were really only under attack on like the east coast of the United States and some right. other places, so, right? So I could access all of the sites that were supposedly down from Russia. And everything <laughs> was fine. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So if you were not aware of this, like Dyn is a DNS provider based out of New Hampshire, actually, and they host DNS for a lot of popular sites, including Shopify and some other things. Like I can't remember what's major, like GitHub and Twitter sure. and. Uh, all that stuff, and like I think there's some like thirty percent uh, market share, right? I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was, but basically they they were under a denial, of, a distributed denial of service attack from what turned out to be Internet of Things cameras, yeah, <laughs> that people had in their houses that had hard coded default passwords in their firmware, uh, <laughs> and so those got owned and uh, started doing denial of service attacks, which is I can't wait for more of these devices to enter people's homes and do this type of thing. It's fantastic. (laughs) Well, there is a group that specifically claimed responsibility for the attack, and they were saying this was actually just a uh, dry run, and they've got bigger targets in mind. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) I think think my theory is they're going to go after some sort of state agency, maybe around the election. I guess, yeah. So this DNS fail, this like this mode of failure has happened before. Like simple DNS, right? Is that their name? DN simple. DN simple. Yeah, DN simple. Simple DNS is probably another thing. Who knows? DN simple was attacked like I don't know, maybe a year or two ago, probably in the same way. Yeah, accidentally. It was an accident. Yeah, it was. uh, So they weren't being DDoS specifically. It was their hosting provider that was being DDoS and. Basically, the site that was being DDoSed, like trying to escape this DDoS, moved over to the server, the same cluster that DN Simple was hosted on. And so then their <laughs> cluster went down as a result of it. Ouch. Yeah. So at the time, I remember being like, wait a minute, why? Like, there are features of DNS that people can use to avoid this single point of failure. Like you can have multiple name servers. Like when you when you go to configure your server, right? If you ever register domain, it's like what are your name servers? And you plug in like ns1.dreamhost.com, ns2.dreamhost.com. There's no requirement that those all be like ns1.dnsimple.com. Like they all come from dnsimple, right? Or they all come from Dyn. They can come from right. any mix you want. Well, also having a reasonable TTL. 
Like if, if people just set their TTL to 24 hours, right. this, this would not have been an issue. Right. So some combination of both of those things, right? Where you say, I want to use multiple DNS providers because one can be taken down and I'm willing to let my DNS records be cached for a longer period of time, which is what setting a longer TTL does. But people don't do that. And so I was like, why aren't we doing that? And so when the DN simple thing got attacked, this is I'm looking at like an old PR I opened against our guides, uh, which appears to be sometime around summer 2015, based on this PR. But basically, I opened this PR and I was like, we need to stop using proprietary DNS extensions. So things like alias, if you use DN simple or a name, if you use like other providers, they call it a name, which is basically if you have like your website, you know, seantheprogrammer.com and you want to use just seantheprogrammer.com without the www yep. and you also want to CNAME that because you want to because point you're it to, on Heroku or you want to or you know, point it to a CDN or whatever you want to do, you right. can't you can't do that with vanilla DNS. It doesn't right. let you that's like the, they, the typical term is called the apex. And so it yep. doesn't let you CNAME the, at the apex. And so to get around this, what people have created is this alias or A-name thing, which is a non-standard, not part of DNS, um, which basically functions like a CNAME in that like DN Simple or some other provider that provides this functionality will in the background just continually ping the CNAME and make sure it updates the IP address that it maps to um, dynamically. Yeah. But once you do that, you you lose the ability to just say like, Take all my DNS records from DN Simple and do a zone transfer over to Dyn or over to whatever, because those records yeah. no longer work. <laughs> I mean, at the same time, you could also just argue copy all of the non-proprietary stuff, and then yeah, if your bare domain stops working during a DDoS attack, like that sucks. Right. But your your site still fundamentally functions. I think that's ultimately what DN Simple ended up doing because like after this they were like they didn't allow zone transfers. A lot of a lot of DNS providers don't allow zone transfers because they can be abused. But they didn't allow any. They had no nothing through the API that would allow you to kick them off or anything like that. So they ended up providing a secondary DNS service where you can integrate with. I think they have a couple of preferred providers, or you can also say like whitelist zone transfers from these providers. And they say like right in there, your alias records are basically going to be baked in to whatever IP address they are at the time of the zone transfer. And they'll become A records on the other side. So, you know, that's one kind of like shitty thing. It's it's unfortunate that like this has been a problem, like this whole alias at the, or this whole CNAME at the Apex has been an issue for like ever since people right. started using CDNs and, and using WWW went out of vogue. Yeah. And I... Like in the guides PR, which we can link to in the P in the thing, I basically opened it by saying like, let's just start using www because nobody cares and it doesn't have this problem, right? Like you can still enter thoughtbot.com and we'll redirect you to www.thoughtbot.com. That'll be our canonical name. Nobody right. cares that www is there. Well, so part of the issue that you still need to do that redirect on the on the Apex domain. And the issue is if you're doing the, the typical hosted redirect, as I think is the term a lot of providers use, where basically they just have a, a web server running somewhere and they have the A record point to that known IP address and it just returns a 301 redirect. If you're, if you're using SSL, right. uh, that blows up. Now, this is only specifically if somebody types in the web address without www. And the browser doesn't know to, or and and the browser tries to do that with HTTPS, right? And that's the conclusion we came to basically in the PR was like, oh crap, we're still using Heroku here. We can't point Heroku to an IP address. We have to point it to right this thing, 
uh, the C name. So basically it was just a, like my response was sigh, close the issue. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, DNS is broken. this is why we can't have nice things. DNS is broken. Nobody seems to be creating any sort of change for it. That's like, hey, this is a thing people keep doing. Let's see if we can figure out a way to make this a standard thing that DNS providers can do. Yeah, uh, that can I mean, all agree that's, on. those sort of standards don't evolve, <laughs> basically. Yeah, unfortunately, I guess. I, or maybe fortunately. I don't know. One of the other things I found really baffling about the whole situation, right? Because your computer is almost never actually directly querying the authoritative name server itself, right. right? It's querying your DNS server, which is usually provided by your ISP, which may or may not be querying the authoritative uh, name server. It might be querying something else. But there's usually, you know, it's yep. usually sort of a ring, and, and at every level, things are caching. Now, if I were writing software for a DNS server, and now we're handling the case of, I have a record. I have successfully fetched this record in the past. The TTL has expired, but when I try to refresh it, I get what is very clearly a server error. Not like this not a this record no longer exists type of error, but what is very clearly just a server error from the authoritative name server. In that situation, serving the cached record, even if even if it's meant to be expired, if you can't refresh the cache, serving the cached record seems like the right thing to do. Yeah, and that is a thing that I believe there are H like there are HTTP cache control headers for that type of thing where you say like must revalidate would be like nope you cannot ever serve this from a stale cache or right. there are there are other settings like and and also like CDNs can get in the middle of that and like change the rules slightly for you and be like we'll try and get this from the origin if we can't then we will serve stale for up to however long and then we'll just say forget it we don't have it or whatever the case may be. So on the at the HTTP level this is something that's fixed at the DNS level. I don't I don't see anybody doing that. I mean I, I also just don't see why you would ever want to have a at the DNS like I could see for an application why you might want might, why you might want must revalidate for DNS that doesn't seem like a thing you ever want. Hmm. That's a good question. Why doesn't why doesn't anybody do that? I mean what's the risk? <laughs> The risk is that you actually tried to edit your records right as the server went down. Right. But even then, your best practice would be to keep a copy of your website running on each host until you know DNS is rotated fully. Right. Because <laughs> some people will just ignore the TTL. It was actually interesting. It, right after this, there was a, somebody went and looked at the records for like the top 100 ranked Alexa, pages on Alexa. And the average TTL between them was something like two minutes. Yeah. And this is just because I understand why this happens. Like I helped maintain the DNS for like the website that I first worked at when I was out of college where we like I maintained the records and we'd be like, oh, we need to fail over to our other site and you got to, you know, update the DNS to this IP address or whatever. Yep. And that's basically where it comes from is like I want to be able to fail over quickly. Yeah. And so you lower your TTL in order to allow for that to happen. But there's a trade off in that like if DNS gets screwed up, <laughs> then you're completely down because you've set this two-minute TTL. And some people at, like, edge CDN providers uh, are trying to use changing the zone file as, like, basically a load balancing procedure, which is probably not a great way to do that. And similarly, I would argue, like, DNS probably isn't the right place to do those kinds of failovers. Do that at a load balancer. I guess, but at some point, you have to fail over your load balancer, right? Somewhere, yeah. you have to point to an IP address, and somewhere, something can go down. If you have a 24-hour yeah. TTL pointing at that thing that went down, then you need to replace that thing at that IP address, or, sure. or your internet is not going to work. Right. So, 
I see it as a trade. Like I, I read a lot of things after this that were like, people need to set 24 hour TTLs. And like, that makes sense when you're working in a world of planned maintenance, right? So if you had a 24 hour TTL and you had a planned failover to your disaster recovery site or something like that, and you knew it was coming up next week, then as you approached, you would lower your TTL. And then as soon as you failed over, you would up it again. And then you would repeat when you wanted to fail back. But the problem comes when you don't know this is coming, right? So you have a 24 hour TTL, the site goes down in a way that like the, you know, maybe the pipe to the building that the server is hosted in is just compromised and, you know, whatever. The pipes are, sure. the, the tubes are clogged and you need to go somewhere else. Then what do you do? Like now you're screwed, you're screwed in a different way. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, the answer there. Even then, right? One hour TTL. Yeah, a I reasonable guess. Default. One hour TTL and a CDN that will serve, <laughs> that will serve your cached traffic, I guess, but it doesn't work for any dynamic stuff really. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of scary that how much DNS is proving to be the single point of failure for the internet. Yeah, like <laughs> when I first started having problems, I was working from home that day, and I was like, "Oh man, today really of all days, Comcast is going to have DNS problems." Because so I was just assumed that it was like because every once in a while Comcast will have DNS problems. I'll be like, oh, "I guess I'll go in and I'll point at eight dot eight dot eight dot eight, which is Google DNS." Yep. And so I'll point there, uh, which I don't like to stay pointed at because a I just care not to give Google that information if I can avoid it. And B, I'd prefer to use local DNS servers, like meaning local to my connection. Right. Because I'm going to get routed on, C- on certain CDNs better that way. The other alternative is to VPN. VPN. Yeah, if you, if you it, like during that whole crisis, if you just used oh, a yeah. VPN to another country, you would have been fine. Right, but I didn't know what was happening. I was just like, Comcast right, is down. Right. Then I switched to 88888, whatever the number of eights, four eights. Yep. And... Um, things worked and i was like oh okay great and then few a few seconds later they were done <laughs> they were down again and i was like what the hell is happening i rebooted my modem i rebooted everything and then finally like because i couldn't get to twitter either to see like what's going on <laughs> like because that's usually what i do i i like get on my phone and then like I, I was like all right well i'm down here let me take out my phone and i still couldn't get to twitter on my phone and i was like okay like dns is not the problem i can't get to it through my home network i can't get through it through verizon's network like something must be going on here um, yeah. and had enough connectivity to other things to figure it out. So, yeah, I don't know. We don't have a solution. <laughs> Cache TTL or I guess, I mean, caching stale stuff was a decent solution. Yeah, I mean, serving stale stuff if you can't refresh the record seems like a reasonable thing to do to me. And that would solve a lot of these problems. Why doesn't there's got to be a reason that's not done, right? Like, I don't know. All right. Maybe maybe the spec actually says don't do that. I mean, the spec says lots of things that we do anyway. That we that, like, the spec doesn't allow for alias and a name, but we do that, right? Uh, the spec, no, the spec doesn't say that you can't have your own special stuff in your zone file. I guess so. Right? There's the must, you know. There's the RFC, whatever, whatever, whatever. Must not, should, uh, must, should not, <laughs> might, perhaps will. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess each DNS server could like I was thinking like oh what if the DN- what if it's getting this response because it's it itself has network problems but you'd be able to detect that difference you'd be able you'd be able to say like I'm not getting a 500 or you know the equivalent of what a 500 would be I don't know if there are right. enough like maybe there aren't enough response codes in DNS to really well you also just have a timeout yeah I guess like it, did it timeout then that's probably my fault but then would you serve I don't know I guess I don't know maybe that's the problem. I would say, yeah, we got to serve something and we know this record exists, so we're going to serve whatever we can because we can't seem to refresh it. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, but I assume smart people have thought of this idea before. Probably. We're going to have to f- talk to some smart people and figure out why, why that's not a thing. I mean, I'm, I'll bet it was more just like a the spe- you know it's more correct if we don't do that, and this was done in the mindset of not shortly after uh, DNS was the source of a major outage on the internet. Right, but I mean, DNS has been the source of major outages on the internet before, and there's long been speculation that like somebody could take down the whole internet by targeting the root name servers. Right. So it's not like this is a problem nobody's thought about before. Right. <laughs> anyway, so I don't know. Hopefully, the IETF is on it. Yes, get that task force going. Uh, <laughs> I'll talk to some people I know that actually know things about DNS, and maybe we can get an answer for the next episode or something. Um, I published the article about the leaking password reset tokens. Uh, did it without getting a what are we calling those things? CVE. Yeah, without getting, I did it without getting a CVE because I just wasn't getting anywhere with that, and decided like. This doesn't really matter. The CVE only covers clearance. And ultimately, this is like a thing that I think people should think about when they do password resets. And most of them probably don't use a library like clearance or devise for doing that. They use something they wrote themselves or whatever, or some other library in some other language. So I just wanted to say like, hey, this is a thing that can happen. And um, unexpectedly kind of got picked up on Hacker News. And there was like a long comment thread there. And I like very carefully waded into the comments. I was like, Oh, God, this is where people are going to be like, you're an idiot. Like, you missed like X, Y, and Z. And for the most part, like, the conversation was very uh, friendly. So there wasn't anybody who was like, this is dumb. (laughs) There was one, I don't know his name, Homakov, Igor, Yegor, Igor. I think he's the same guy who compromised GitHub that one time. Okay. He commented on Twitter that like this is a non-issue, but then I actually had a conversation back and forth with him, and he was like, "Um, yeah, I mean, this is." He kind of like softened it a little bit to be like, "It's more accurate to say like this is an issue for any sort of secret URL in an application, which is what a password reset is, and that's true." But password reset just happens to be like the most popular type of secret URL that you have. Right. Other interesting solutions people talked about was like one or several people were actually like, I put the token in the hash on the URL. Right, and they used JavaScript and then used, to extract it. And then use JavaScript to extract it, which isn't a terrible solution. Um, I didn't think it was appropriate for my use case, but certainly like it's something that could that could work for you if you did it that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm in the camp of like, if you can do something without JavaScript. That was my point. I was like, I can do this without JavaScript, so why not, I guess. So, yeah, I think that just about wraps that up. Although one person also pointed out that now uh, part of my solution is to do put, put the token in the session and then do the redirect. And uh, somebody pointed out on the PR that if that session gets stolen, there's that leaked token in the session. Sure, but if your session gets stolen, right. if my like session they can gets, just log in. Right. If my session gets stolen, it's likely because I have like a cross-site scripting vulnerability, in which case like all bets or are off. Or there's a man-in-the-middle attack going on. Right, again, which case all bets are off. So. Like they have, they they at that point the account is fully compromised. So right. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, I don't know. I would say I was pleasantly surprised by the the level of discourse that surrounded it because it was something that's like I'm not like a web security expert, so I was a little nervous and being like, okay, I, I think I got this right. Let's see what the internet thinks. And then when it was like it's on, it's number three on Hacker News, I was like excited and then simultaneously like, oh man, I'm gonna find out where I got this really wrong. Yeah. Um, and people were generally friendly. So that, I think that concludes the thrilling story of the password of the leaked password reset token. I don't. I hope we don't have to talk about that anymore. Your password reset tokens are safe now. I mean, everybody can chill. 
Probably not. I think most people read it and were like, oh, interesting. My app definitely does that and then probably did nothing to fix it. Right. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, because it is ultimately a really, as we've discussed, it's ultimately a really low probability of something actually happening. But Right. Anyway. Let's talk about your talk. How did it go? Because we, we... Oh, uh, it went okay. Oh, just okay? Well, so that what happened was, like, it, it really, really became more and more about spaceships. And then I had a section <laughs> at the end where I, like, tied it all back into rails. Okay. Except we started late. And <laughs> I assumed that what they were going to do was what you normally do when you start late, which is you cut into the, the break. Yeah. Instead, I ended up getting cut off early. <laughs> oh no that's tough that's really tough because like you planned a keynote along this length and they're like tough luck speed it up did they tell you like they were going to cut you off earlier these like at the I, end they I were like you gotta when, go i found out when that when i got the uh five minute warning card <laughs> i'm like it's only been 30 minutes <laughs> and how long were you supposed to go for 45 an hour an hour oh no yeah you have no uh, hope of compressing a half an hour material on the fly well, it was an hour with Q&A. It was oh, targeted okay. to be about 40 minutes. Okay. But it was just like, so it was literally just a talk about spaceships. <laughs> but people seemed to like it. So just finding pictures was really hard. Mm -hmm. And because uh, it was all about Soviet era spacecrafts. And um, there's really only one actual picture. And I got tired of putting up diagrams of the spaceships for the image, images of each, because the R7 had a bunch of different permutations over the years. Anyway, so as, uh, as I was go going to talk about the Voshkod, I, I put a picture of a Vostok. I'm just like, they're kind of basically the same. Like, they look they look roughly the same, because they're, they're both, uh, they both have the, just the, the single upper stage, as opposed to the Molnia, which had uh, uh, two upper stages. But I didn't realize, was it literally said Vostok on the side of it in Russian? <laughs> <laughs> so like yeah so I, I i i did not get away with that <laughs> good try though uh yeah but overall i think people liked it i'm not sure if it was recorded or not so I'm, there may or may not be a video okay but it was fun to talk about spaceships for my for my 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 quote-unquote last talk for now are you for at least a year. are you retiring from talks altogether for at least a year yeah, yeah. But not all together. Uh, You'll be back. I'll be back. Maybe maybe for uh, RubyConf next year. Do you either view or is giving talks part of your job? Yes. You view it that way and it explicitly is or like both, both of those things? I view it that way and it, I guess it kind of explicitly is because how I view my job is like basically my job. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because I was going to say, you know, you, you don't you you don't have to give talks like ever. You can just, but I guess if it's part of your job, you kind of have to. I think I think it's important for the Rails team to make a presence at various community events. That makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. I did um, fourteen talks this year in six countries on three continents, so I'm a little I'm a little burnt out on those. <laughs> That's good. How many distinct talks were there? Probably. I think seven. Wow. Awesome. There were five that I was uh, originally giving, and then one of them was custom for Russia, and then one of them uh, was for a Rust conference. Well, that's good. Glad yeah. you get a little break. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anything else? Should we just wrap up? Yeah. All right. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 87. 
As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes or Google Play are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Adios.